of Cooper Arts at Cooper Union and uh, are meant to underscore the fact that this great hall for 140 years has been a forum for inspiriting our lives, for uh, in invigorating our very spirits, and for caressing the culture of our city. And out of those 140 years have come many memorable evenings, but we like to think none, none more so than tonight. There'll be two more important events in this series that I would love to uh, invite you to participate in. Uh, on the following Saturdays, beginning tomorrow night, uh, we shall have here a very distinguished translator, Robert Alter, who reads from his new book, The David Story, a translation of the Old Testament books of Samuel. Welcome you back. Uh, it's a free event and a very important part of our celebration. And then next Saturday, we shall be having one of our musical events, early music ensembles with uh, the world-famous Pomerium Group, who perform a 19th century, a 16th century uh, musical program here at 7.30 a week from this coming Saturday. So it is now my great honor to produce uh, the star of our show, Giovanna Calvino, uh, Calvino's daughter, who is, as you know, uh, a wonderfully dedicated person who was taught at NYU at the University of Pennsylvania, holds her own PhD in comparative liter literature from the uh, University of Penn, and currently works here in our city as an actress and theatrical producer. I'd like to introduce you now to our MC, Giovanna Calvino. This is supposed to be a cheerful evening, so if I start crying, don't mind me. Um, my father used to say that when writers die, they go through um, a kind of purgatory where everybody forgets them for a long time. And, and seeing how many of you are here tonight, I'm so happy that he was wrong. Um, I just need to recover for a second. Uh, Oct October is my father's birthday month, and I'm sure he would have loved to spend it in New York because since the first time he came here, in 1959, and throughout his life, he kept saying that New York was his favorite city in the whole world. Um, so I, I tried to imagine what would be a happy evening for my father in New York, with whom would he have liked to, to spend, to go out for dinner downtown um, the evening of his birthday. And the, the writers who will speak tonight happen to be three of the greatest living writers in the world, but they were all very close friends of my father. Um, he admired them, he loved them, and I think he also had good fun with them. Um, 
we followed the same inspiration in inviting the actors who will read excerpts from his texts. Um, we thought of them not only because of their great talent, but also because I think if my father had met them, they would have become a part of his ideal family. Our four actors this evening are Maria Tucci, Catherine, Catherine Barowitz, Wallace Sean, and John Hilner. Our four speakers are Umberto, our three speakers, forgive me, are Umberto Eco. Carlos Fuentes. And Salman Rushdie. This is the beginning of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. This is the beginning of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. How's that? You are about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Relax, concentrate. Dispel every other thought. Let the world around you fade. Best to close the door. The TV's always on in the next room. Tell the others right away, no, I don't want to watch TV. Raise your voice. They won't hear you otherwise. I'm reading. I don't want to be disturbed. Maybe they haven't heard you with all that racket. Speak louder. Yell. I'm beginning to read Italo Calvino's new novel. Or if you prefer, don't say anything. Just hope they'll leave you alone. Find the most comfortable position, seated, stretched out, curled up, or lying flat. Flat on your back, on your side, on your stomach, in an easy chair, on the sofa, in the rocker, in the deck chair, on the hassock, in the hammock, if you have a hammock, on top of your bed, of course, or in the bed. You can even stand on your hands, head down, in the yoga position, with the book upside down, naturally. Of course, the ideal position for reading is something you can never find. In the old days, they used to read standing up at a lectern. People were accustomed to standing on their feet without moving. They rested like that when they were tired of horseback riding. <laughs> Nobody ever thought of reading on horseback 
And yet now, the idea of sitting in the saddle, the book propped against the horse's mane, or maybe tied to the horse's ear with a special harness, seems attractive to you. With your feet in the stirrups, you should feel quite comfortable for reading. Having your feet up is the first condition for enjoying a read. In these 10 minutes I have been given, I want to speak of the Calvinus book I love more, The Baron on the Trees, and to say why it has remained for me a text which has accompanied, accompanied me along, uh, all along my life as a sort of moral and political manifesto. I understand that it can sound curious to speak of a moral and political lesson for a book that when published, made many engaged Italian intellectuals to complain for the fact that with it, Calvino was showing that the Visconti di Mezzato of six years before didn't represent a sort of parenthesis in the work of a narrator characterized by a realistic vein. With this new novel, Calvino was abandoning the path to the spider's nest and moving definitely towards the poetics of the fantastic, surfing through new possible worlds, cosmic, 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 comic galaxies, invisible cities, Zenonian astral project trajectories. One cannot imagine today how much the official Italian left felt upset by the baron on the trees. But it would be sufficient to remember how in the same decade the simple fact that Lucchino Visconti was a communist intellectual and dared to tell with things, so not a worker's story, but the romantic and decadent passions of two lovers of the 19th century was practically excommunicated by the guardian of so-called socialist realism. I won't tell you why, for a young man of 25, as I was when reading The Baron in 1957, this book had such a devastating impact on my notions of political engagement as well as of the social role of intellectuals. It goes without saying that the book delighted me as a stupendous work of literature, making me to dream of those enchanted hoods of Ambrosia sloping down towards the sea, and few few days ago, I have reread for the novel, and I have felt the same impression of felicity captured once more by the spell of a transparent language through which and not in spite of which I felt myself in a quasi-physical way climbing from branch to branch with Cosimo and becoming successively a golden oriole, a squirrel, a wild cat, a sparrow, or even a cherry or an olive leaf. The language of the Baron is crystal-like, and Calvino, in six memos, said that the crystal, with its precise faceting and its ability to refract the light, was his model of perfection that he had always cherished as an emblem. But in 1957, my reaction was more than aesthetic, uh, philosophical, which should not amaze anyone since I was reading not 
a fairy tale, as many consider it, but a great conte philosophique. Between the 40s and the 50s, young intellectuals, irrespective whether they were communist or Catholic, were obsessed by the moral duty to be, as they used to say, organic to their own ideological group. Really, one felt blackmailed by a general call for the duty of being militant and using one's intellectual power in order to fight against the ideological enemies. Only two voices were heard against such a conception of the role of intellectuals. One in the 40s had been the one of Elio Vittorini, with whom Calvino collaborated in his youth, and later in the 60s, editing with him Benabo, a journal, which, a journal which, which enormously influenced the course of Italian literature in that decade. Vittorini said in 1947 that intellectual mustn't play the flute for the revolution. He meant that they must not be press agents of their political group, but rather its critical consciousness. Vittorini belonged at that time to the Communist Party and published a rather independent and short-lived journal, Il Politecnico. Obviously, he was considered a traitor of the working class. Il Politecnico died, and the appeal of Vittorino remained for a long time unheard. In 1955, we, my generation, I mean, were fascinated by a book on political philosophy, Politica Cultura by Norberto Bobbio who designed in more rigorous terms the profile of an intellectual who makes his or her own intellectual duty by searching a truth which cannot be identified with the ideological truth of his or her group. But Vittorini launched only a slogan and Bobbio developed a severe philosophical argument. Too little or too much to produce an epiphany. This was done by the baron on the trees, which had the persuasive power of a parable, the deep appeal of a myth, the charm of a fairy tale, the gentle force of poetry. Calvino has deleted from his manuscripts certain moralizing paragraphs which could have made his lesson too much intrusive. Cosimo Piovasco di Rondò doesn't teach nothing, at least to the readers. He simply embodies an example. Only twice the novel suggests its possible moral interpretation. The first time in chapter 20, when it is told that Cosimo maintained that if one wants to watch the earth in the, right in the right way, one ought to keep a necessary distance from it. Which reminds me of a remark from Six Memos for the next millennium, chapter one, Perseus Strange always lies in a refusal to look directly, but not in the refusal of the reality in which he is fated to live. The second time is when, chapter 25, Cosimo's brother wonders, without finding any answer, how Cosimo's passion for social affairs could be reconciled with his escape from society. Cosimo decides to spend his entire aerial life on the trees, flying away from the earthly world. 
But these trees are not for him an ivory tower. From their top, he watches the reality acquiring a superior wisdom, since the people he sees look very little, and he understands better than anybody else the problems of the poor humans who have the misadventure of walking on their own feet. Being on the trees, Cosimo is pulled to take an active part on the life of his land. Being an aristocrat, he shares the problems of the dropouts. By becoming a sort of trickster god, or a shelm, not so dissimilar from the animals, which are his friends, his food, and his clothes, he transforms nature into culture without destroying it, and is pulled step by step to engage himself in the social life, not only of his small territory, but of the whole Europe. Living as a good savage, he becomes a man of the Enlightenment. Escaping from society, he becomes a revolutionary, revolutionary leader, but one who is always able to criticize those who fight in his own side and able to feel sorrow and disenchantment for the excess of his idols. Really, he is the model of an engaged intellectual who never plays the flute for anybody but only for reasonableness and compassion. Not in a novel, but in a later commentary of the 60s, Calvino acknowledged the fact that if Cosimo had to be an interesting character, he shouldn't have been a misanthrope, but rather a man involved in his time's problems. And he remarked that solitude and uncomfortable singularity were the vocation of the poet of the explorer and of the revolutionary. This kind of lesson was fundamental to me. I remember that years later, during one of those over-engaged meetings of 1968 students, asked to define the role of the intellectual, I proposed Calvino's novel as the only reliable textbook, and quoting Cosimo as a model, I said that the first duty of an engaged intellectual was to live on the trees to keep a distance from their, his, his companions in order to criticize them, first of all, and not to provide slogans against their adversary, ready to face the fiery squad in order to testify as to what they believed was the truth. At that time, this wasn't a popular issue. But many of the students who booed then are now working for Berlusconi, the leader <laughs> of Italian Tories. Why the lesson suggested by this novel was for me, and I think it will be in the future for many others, so convincing. Calvino explained it indirectly in his six memos. Moral lessons are usually very heavy. And the only virtue of those who succeed in making them memorable is the gift of lightness. Ariel, like his baron, Calvino's prose has no weight. It is plus vague et plus soluble dans l'air sans rien en lui qui pèse et qui pose, as Verlaine would have said. Or, to conclude with Calvino's words, whenever humanity seems condemned to heaviness, I think I should fly like Perseus into a different space. 
I don't mean escaping into dreams or into the irrational. I mean that I have to change my approach, look at the world from a different perspective, with a different logic, and with fresh methods of cognition and verification. The image of lightness that I seek should not fade away like dreams dissolved by the realities of present and future. That was what Calvino did and left us as a legacy. Uh, so this is the last paragraph of The Baron in the Trees. Ombrosa no longer exists. Looking at the empty sky, I ask myself if it ever did really exist. That mesh of leaves and twigs, of fork and froth, minute and endless, with the sky glimpsed only in sudden specks and splinters. Perhaps it was only there so that my brother could pass through it with his tom-tits tread, was embroidered on nothing, like this thread of ink, which I have let run on for page after page, swarming with cancellations, corrections, doodles, blots and gaps, bursting at times into clear big berries, coagulating at others into piles of tiny starry seeds, then twisting away, forking off, surrounding buds of phrases with frameworks of leaves and clouds, then interweaving again, and so running on and on and on until it splutters and bursts into a last senseless cluster of words, ideas, dreams, and so ends. Querida Chichita, cara Giovanna, ladies and gentlemen, I read the news about Italo Calvino's death. Sitting at my desk in Harvard University's Boylston Hall on 18 September 1985. My phone rang. It was the Boston Globe calling. I imagined that they wanted me to say something about Calvino. No, no. The same day that Italo died, an earthquake of eight degrees on the Richter scale destroyed vast sections of my city, the world's largest, Mexico. Well, in Mexico, nature likes to shake history. It trembled when the Spanish conquered the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, in 1521. It trembled when the revolutionary leader, Madero, rode into town in 1911. And it trembled when Italo Calvino died. Were the ancient gods of Mexico raging against the death of the fabulist who had written the most imaginative of imaginary interviews with the last Aztec emperor, Moctezuma. So I do not know what shook me most that day 14 years ago. Italo had written announcing that he would be giving the Charles Eliot Norton lectures that semester and hoped that we uh, could meet. The lectures finally came out as six memos for the new millennium. There they are, we can read them with admiration and even a slight shudder of premonition. But tonight I would like to refer to another prescient book of Calvino's called The Literary Machine. 
In it, the great Italian author writing on politics and the novel offers a precise distinction. There are, he says, two mistaken manners of the political, political uses of the novel. The first is that the novel repeat a truth, abundant quotation marks, already manifested politically. The second is to demand that literature should illustrate eternal human sentiments. Both of them, uh, one of them political, the other second apparently humanistic, but more usually melodramatic, simply assign to literature the function of telling us what we already know. In any case, uh, speaking of melodrama, you know it's being very well defined that melodrama is comedy without humor. <laughs> the correct uses of politics and literature are quite other. According to Calvino, politics is in need of literature when literature gives a voice to those who lack a voice and it, when it gives a name to the anonymous. This is a ticket that eminently suits us in Latin America, where for too long literary silence reigned, first because writing or reading novels was forbidden by the Spanish crown in its colonies, second because the century of our first independence, the 19th century, we were too busy copying political, legal, economic, and aesthetic models from Europe on the erroneous belief that we would thus become instantaneously democratic and progressive society. We simply became Nescafe republics, swinging between dictatorship and anarchy. Only in our present and gasping century did we discover that we had a tradition to build on and that it, not, it did not exclude our European, Iberian, but also Jewish and Arab heritages, Vide Borges, but had to recover our Indian, Vide Asturias, and our black, Vide Carpentier, and Amado, and Glissant heritages. Only by recovering tradition could we build on it creation. Here again, we felt a strong companionship with Calvino when he explained that as a value model, literature possesses the gift of, I quote him, offering standards of language, imagination, vision, mental effort, and the correlation of facts. Calvino's conclusion is typically his. Literature offers solid ground for anyone trying to establish a system of such flexibility and subtlety that it can forego a perfect absence of any system whatsoever. Again, Calvino's book saved us from the absurd dichotomy, virtuous literature of political import versus sinful art for art's sake. So in great measure, it is thanks to Calvino that I and many others in Latin America, I'm sure, could go beyond simplistic and sometimes Manichaean oppositions and consider literature as a constant expansion a constant expansion of both social and aesthetical expectations. A reader of Garcia Marquez or Cortázar not only shares actual experiences, but anticipates possibilities that might otherwise remain hidden, thus broadening, as Hans-Robert Jaus puts it, uh, our desires, our claims, and our goals. Or as I put it, does not literature, apart from our own personal political convictions, does not literature serve the social function of maintaining the vigor of language, 
and imagination, two values that dictators such as Hitler and Stalin did not particularly price. And does it not serve the aesthetical and historical function of linking past, present, and future, demonstrating that there is no living present with a dead past, no new creation without a previous tradition to nourish it, and no tradition without a new creation to prolong it? Italo Calvino, in his philosophical fables, as well as in his great tales of the imaginary, is telling us that there is always a hypothetical reader who, after all, will not only read today, but will also read tomorrow. The Calvinist conception of literature, I believe, rests on this proposition. Tomorrow, there shall be a reader. Therefore, the writer must imagine a reader more knowledgeable and intelligent than the writer. The writer is addressing a reader who will know more than the writer. And what the reader knows is what not a single writer knows today. The reader will know tomorrow. Thanks to this vision of supreme and fantastical literary intelligence, Calvino was able to see the desolate part, the desolate part of our existence, that is the part demanding to be written. He was the writer of the unwritten world. He was the writer who could register, in the name of us all, what in the cosmic comics he describes as a darkness streaked with voices. Supremely gifted with grace and humor, intensely connected to love, to books, and to friendship, Calvino's fantasies are also perhaps a form of his personal courtesy. Let me simply stake out the territory of Calvino's humor as he establishes the comical limits of literature when he spies Ian Fleming writing a structuralist novel. <laughs> or when the Italian author applies the techniques of the French Nouveau Roman to the art of jogging. But beauty and the limits of the literary imagination also come together in Calvino's fictions. With a smile in his heart, he incessantly attempted to fix the literary image of a world in search of its own image, or as he puts it on the world, when it began to offer an image of itself. Calvino's uh, is an art of reading and an art of parody an art of fragmentation, and above all, an art of the unfinished. Calvino wished to capture within a book the unread but not the unreadable part of the universe. Sometimes uh, this appears as a world without a center and without a self. Yet Calvino knew that all that is not written shall always be more than what is already written. And that is why he so successfully makes the written page vibrate, creating the illusion that the reader, when he or she read what is written, also read what has not yet been written. This was his homage to each and every one of us. The reader shall know the future. He, you and I, will not. Lest this sound too despairing, Calvino lovingly offers us the fragments of the book in the making of itself and thus of the world. 
His novels are full of ellipses, enigmas, questions designed to invite us into his creation of a book as a creation of the world. His humor, nevertheless, saves him from the dangers of foreclosing his own creation. A perfect book, a total book, would be, he tells us, a sacred book, and thus an unreadable book. Because in a perfect, that is a sacred book, no more questions would be asked, since the sacred book would have all the answers. Thus, his option, I wake Umberto Eco, for the open work of which, uh, if on a winter's night, a traveler continues to be a supreme example. In his opera aperta, Calvino deprived us of the pleasure of knowing how it will end, offering us instead the even much more pleasurable chance of imagining it all, how it all will not end. That is, how it all will renew itself, how any piece of literature reinitiates relates and correlates with itself, with the reader, and with other books, creating previously unsuspected constellations of meaning. The art of the unfinished. The reader knows the future, and in order to respect the reader, we shall offer the reader a book, which is a continuous event, a continuous event, not an established or concluded fact. Italo Calvino maintained us on the alert, readers and writers, on our toes. And he did it with a fabulous sense of the playful, with a humor offering us a guarantee of spiritual health in a world both terrifying and terrified. So he lives on an insurance policy against our own certainty that if death is inevitable, life will be continuous. Thank you. Uh, this is a very short story called The Flash from uh, Numbers in the Dark. Calvino wrote this when he was in his 20s. It happened one day at a crossroads in the middle of a crowd, people coming and going. I stopped, blinked. I understood nothing, nothing, nothing about anything. I didn't understand the reasons for things or for people. It was all senseless absurd, and I started to laugh. What I found strange at the time was that I'd never realized before, that up until then I'd accepted everything, traffic lights, cars, posters, uniforms, monuments, things completely detached from any sense of the world, accepted them as if there were some necessity, some chain of cause and effect that bound them together. Then the laugh died in my throat. I blushed, ashamed. I waved to get people's attention and, and stop a second, I shouted. There's something wrong. Everything's wrong. We're doing the absurdest things. This can't be the right way. Where will it end? 
People stopped around me, sized me up, curious. I stood there in the middle of them, waving my arms, desperate to explain myself, to have them share the flash of insight that had suddenly enlightened me. And I said, nothing. I said nothing because the moment I'd raised my arms and opened my mouth, my great revelation had been, as it were, swallowed up again, and the words had come out any old how on impulse. So, people asked, what do you mean? <laughs> Everything's in its place. All is as it should be. Everything is a result of something else. Everything fits in with everything else. We can't see anything absurd or wrong. And I stood there lost because, as I saw it now, everything had fallen into place again and everything seemed natural. Traffic lights, monuments, uniforms, tower blocks, tram lines, beggars, processions, yet this didn't calm me down, it tormented me. I'm sorry, I answered. Perhaps it was me that was wrong. It, it seemed that way, but everything's fine. I'm sorry. <laughs> and I made off amid their angry glares. Yet even now, every time, often, that I find I don't understand something, then instinctively I'm filled with the hope that perhaps this will be my moment again. Perhaps once again I shall understand nothing. I shall grasp that other knowledge, found and lost in an instant. This is a reading from Mr. Palomar. It was published in 1983. And I'm going to read the first part of the final chapter entitled, Learning to be Dead. Mr. Palomar decides that from now on, he will act as if he were dead, to see how the world gets along without him. For some while, he has realized that things between him and the world are no longer proceeding as they used to. Before, they seemed to expect something of each other he in the world, now he no longer recalls what there was to expect, good or bad, or why this expectation kept him in a perpetually agitated, anxious state. So now, Mr. Palomar should feel a sense of relief, no longer having to wonder what the world has in store for him, and there should be relief also for the world, which no longer has to bother about him. But it is the very expectation of enjoying this calm that makes Mr. Palomar anxious. In other words, being dead is less easy than it might seem. Well, first of all, you must not confuse being dead with not being, a condition that occupies the vast expanse of time before birth, apparently symmetrical with the other equally vast expanse that follows death. In fact, before birth, we are part of the infinite possibilities that may or may not be fulfilled, whereas once dead, 
We cannot fulfill ourselves either in the past, to which we now belong entirely, but on which we can no longer have any influence, or in the future, which even if influenced by us, remains forbidden to us. Mr. Palomar's case is really simpler, since his capacity for having any influence on anything or anybody has always been negligible. The world can very well do without him, and he can consider himself dead quite serenely without even altering his habits. <laughs> the problem is not the change in what he does, but in what he is. Or more specifically, in what he is as far as the world is concerned. Before, by world, he meant the world plus himself. Now it is a question of himself plus the world minus him. This is a brief letter which Calvino writes to answer a woman who requests an interview because she is writing a biographical study. Dear Madam, I am delighted you want to write a biographical study of my work, delighted and also frightened, terrified, because up until now no one had thought of this and I considered myself safe since I planned to be forgotten within a few years. The good thing is that these literary initiatives usually die before they even come to light, so there is nothing to worry about. <laughs> you ask for biographical facts. I am still one of those who believe that only the work counts, if it does count, naturally. Hence, I will give you no biographical facts, <laughs> or I will give you false ones. Or at least, I will change them every once in a while. <laughs> Ask me whatever you want, and I will tell you. But I will never tell you the truth. Of this, you can be certain. <laughs> About the interview, the same above reasons. I am opposed to an interview. If, however, you want to come to see me, I will be happy to talk to you. But right beforehand, because I'm never in Torino except on Saturday and rarely on Friday. And if at that point we work it out, I will try to convince you not to write the book. In, um, in 1981, Calvino's book, um, If on a Winter's Night, A Traveler, was published in England to a more or less resounding silence um, on account of very few people in England had ever heard of Italo Calvino, um, even though this was relatively late in his incredibly distinguished series of books. And I remember ringing the important journal, the London Review of Books, and saying, are you planning to review If on a Winter's Night a Traveler? And they said, whose book is that? <laughs> I said, it's by Italo Calvino, and they said, who's that? <laughs> and and I mean, a state of affairs which I think tells us more about the state of literary interest in England in the early 1980s uh, <laughs> than it does about the work of, of Calvino. But anyway, I was more or less horrified and asked them if I could write not just a review of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, but a, a larger piece 
introducing the, the readers of the London Review of Books to, to the work of this writer, so little known to them. So I wrote this, this piece, and um, without my knowing it, somebody sent it to Calvino. Um, and shortly after this, I very briefly became flavor of the month in England because Book of Mine won a prize. And, and, everybody, and everybody in the world was ringing me and asking me to do things I didn't want to do. Um, in the middle of this, I was telephoned by um, somebody who ran the, a, a theater in London, the Riverside Theater in Hammersmith, uh, called David Gotthard, who started, who said to me that, that Calvino had agreed to do a reading, um, very rare event in, in England, and, uh, and would like me to introduce him. And then, knowing that I was going to find 17 reasons not to do it, he began to tell me that while he knew I was very busy and he knew I'd want to say no, um, and of course my sh schedule must be very busy and naturally the, I must be terribly importuned by requests such as this, nevertheless he would be grateful. And I was all the time trying to interrupt him to tell him that I wanted to accept. Um, it, it took me really quite a long time to interrupt him to, to agree to do it. Um, and this was the first occasion on which I, I, I met Calvino. Um, I went along to the, to the Riverside ahead of time um, to, to, you know, to do the kind of sound checks and things. And, and I, had, I suddenly realized on my way that I was in the terrifying position of being the only person who'd written something new for the evening, because I'd had to write something about Calvino. And I was going to have to say this in his presence. Um, and I began to, to, to sweat. And when I got there, he, he greeted me and then said, have you written something? I said, yes. He said, show it to me. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I thought, you know, I thought unprintable things, but handed over, <laughs> handed over these little cards, thinking, well, if he doesn't like it, I don't know, what the hell do I do? You know? um, fortunately, early on in this, this brief thing, I had, I had made a reference to uh, the golden ass of Apuleius, and that settled him down. Apuleius, he said, very good. <laughs> he gave it back, and as a result, I was able to make my introduction. And, and, um, and it was an amazing day, because I think Calvino perhaps didn't realize the degree of affection there was for his writing in England. I mean, not surprisingly, given see above London Review of Books. Um, what happened that day in, in the Riverside Theater, I, I remember, is completely unforgettable. I had never seen a theater so crowded. There were people hanging from the rafters, literally. There were people who had come with, with dog-eared copies of every book written by Calvino. Um, it, was, it was an amazing demonstration of, of admiration and affection. And uh, I, th I mean, I, I'm sure he was very moved by it. Certainly, I, mean, I was. You know, it wasn't even my work. Um, <laughs> and, um, after that, I was able to, to, to get to know him and, and Chichita and afterwards Giovanna, and, and that has been one of the great uh, experiences of my life, that relationship with him. Uh, for instance, his review of, of, uh, that he wrote of Midnight's Children in, in, when it was published in Italy in, uh, in Repubblica uh, was certainly the most important thing that happened to that book in Italy, and, and it did an enormous amount to introduce my work to, to Italian readers, and, and that kind of early encouragement is something for which uh, I'll always be grateful. I remember, actually, the year after this, in, in, in uh, October 1982, Italo and Cicita were invited as guests of honor uh, to the Booker Prize dinner uh, that year. Um, and I was invited as well as the outgoing Miss World, so to speak, you know, because so, uh, I'd won it the year before. 
they don't usually like inviting writers to the Booker Prize, do they? They, um, they invite as few as possible. Um, and, and, the and the only writers, really, who get there are the six on the shortlist and the person who won it the previous year. So, so I was there, and I remember going with, um, with Italo and Cicita and then discovering that the Booker people, with their sophistication and subtlety, forgot to announce that Italo was there so that, so that nobody knew he was in the room. Um, and, and this was after they'd flown him to, you know, from Italy at great expense and put him up and given him a chauffeur-driven car and so on and then just didn't bother to say he was in the room. Um, <laughs> this was a... This year was notable for two other things. One was that the Booker was won that year by, uh, by a book called, uh, in England called Schindler's Ark, uh, which was published as fiction, even though in its introduction, the author Thomas Keneally said, in this work I have tried to eschew all fiction. Um, and it, it, it then won the Booker Prize for fiction. Um, completely Calvino-esque enterprise, which in fact I find completely admirable because as a result of that, Schindler's Ark republished in America as non-fiction. Um, Garland did with the Booker Prize for fiction. Um, retitled Schindler's List, um, of course, became a very important text. And, and had the Booker judges not performed this completely Calvino-esque act, um, we might never have had uh, that work. Um, the other thing that had happened in 1982 was a little dispute between Britain and Argentina, uh, <laughs> which, depending where you came from, you call the Falklands War or the War of the Malvinas. And since Chichita came from Argentina, we know what she called it. Um, and I remember her coming up to me in the moments before we all had to sit down for dinner, very displeased. And she said, what will I do? They have asked me to sit next to an English admiral. <laughs> um, further example of the subtlety of the Booker Prize. Um, <laughs> um, I, I said to Chichita, well, as far as I can see, there's only one thing you can do. You have to be very rude. Um, <laughs> and she said, um, she said is, that, is that allowed? I said, yeah. You know. She said, okay. And then every so often during the evening, I would look over to, from my table to where Chichita and the Admiral were sitting. The Admiral was sitting very stiffly. And, and rather silently, and Chichita was sitting extremely mobilely and, 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 and fantastically volubly. And, and the ambassador, uh, the admiral, I'm happy to say, had a very bad night. <laughs> um, all this passed without anyone in the room, as I say, being aware of their presence. Um, just one other memory I have of, of Italo and was, was having that he came to, to do an event at the Italian Institute. And, in London and we, we had dinner together afterwards and it so happened that it was the day on which Garcia Marquez won the Nobel Prize. And um, I remember asking Italo, the same age as Garcia Marquez, how he, had he heard the news from Stockholm? Yes, he said, it's a scandal. <laughs> I said, well, Italo, I said, you know, Garcia Marquez, you know, he's a good writer. He's, and, 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 uh, you know, surely it's a, it's a good thing. And, 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 and Calvino said, yes, he says, Garcia Marquez, he's a good writer, but he can wait. 
<laughs> and, then, um, and then went on to say, completely truthfully, that uh, to give the Nobel Prize to Garcia Marquez before giving it to Borges was, as he said, like giving it to the son before the father. Um, and uh, I guess that's what he meant. Um, I wanted to just say something about one of the things that Calvino's writing showed me, which is that, what is that there is a mistake, it seems to me, in what we, about what we call realism in the novel. That's to say, most people who write about realism in the novel talk about realism as if it were a set of rules, you know, as, if, as if naturalistic conventions had to be obeyed, and, um, uh, and that as long as you kept to those rules, what you were writing was something called realism. Um, it seems to me that those conventions the tools you use you know, the, 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 uh, have more or less nothing at all to do with whether your work is realistic or not, and this is what Calvino's writing shows us. As we've heard all this evening, uh, pieces ranging from the metaphysical to the fanciful to the concrete to the comical, what they all have in common is that they're incredibly realistic in that they show us more about what it is to be a member of the human race or alive on the earth or, or, or going about our day. Um, they are realistic in their enterprise, and it seems to me that that is the point about realism that Calvino demonstrates and that almost all literary critics fail to notice. It's got nothing to do with technique. It has everything to do with intention and with, the, uh, with what the writer is trying to do. It seems to me a completely naturalistic novel about adultery in the English upper classes that seems to me like magical realism, you know. That seems to me like, like uh, uh, fantasy, you know, uh, um, and, and certainly like escapism. Um, whereas these books, fantastic, uh, fabulistic, uh, playful, seem to me to never lose sight of what is real and what is false. Uh, and that, I think, is, is certainly for me the greatest lesson I learned to him. He's, all writers build roads from the world in which they live to the world of the imagination. And I think Calvino, more than anyone else, was interested in that road. How is it built? You know, what are its bricks? How do you get there from here? You know, by what journey does one reach Wonderland or Alphaville or Oz? What is their relationship? to the world we live in, and literally, how do you build the road? And I think that was an amazingly consistent enterprise in his vision. And to illustrate it, I just wanted to tell an extraordinary story which Sujita once told me about the death of Calvino. And I tell it not because I want to say something gloomy, but because it seems to me to be a story of incredible beauty and a story of, which could only, in a way, happen to Calvino. It has to do with the last words of Calvino when he wasn't saying very much in his last coma, and he emerged almost for the last time, and he said a fragment. I hope I get the Italian pronunciation roughly right. He, he spoke the words, Vanni di Marsalia, phenomenologo. Vanni of Marsalia, phenomenologist. And as Cicita said, between these, in the pause between these, she heard a comma. <laughs> now the question arose, who was Varni di Marsalia? 
and why was Mike Italo have been thinking about him? And well, he turned. It was difficult to find anybody with that name in Italian history, but eventually, in an old file of some of Calvino's very, very earliest writings, writings that he had done for the Piedmont edition of Unita when he was a young uh, radical writer, where he had a column. Um, Chichita discovered that in this column, he had at one point invented a Marxist utopia of sorts with the name Marxalia. Um, and at some point, the X in Marxalia had become an S, and this had become Marsalia. The extraordinary idea that Calvino in his last moments should have returned to his almost earliest writing, to go back to the world of his beginning and to end on a comma, seems to me to be almost more beautifully Calvino-esque than Calvino could have written. Um, and I think it's a measure of the, the greatness of that imagination that this coherence in his work lasts even into this last incoherent moment. Thank you. humbly follow that. I also want to just say one thing. Um, not only has he left us these extraordinary words, he and filled us with so much joy, he's left us this extraordinary daughter. This is just a little bit from all at one point from Cosmicomici. Through the calculations begun by Edwin P. Hubble on the galaxy's velocity of recession, we can establish the moment when all the universe's matter was concentrated in a single point before it began to expand in space. Naturally, we were all there, old Quitquit said. Where else could we have been? Nobody knew then that there could be space or time either. What use did we have for time, packed in there like sardines? I say packed like sardines using a literary image. In reality, there wasn't even space to pack us into. Every point of each of us coincided with every point of each of the others in a single point, which was where we all were. In fact, we didn't even bother one another except for personality differences because <laughs> when space doesn't exist, having somebody unpleasant like Mr. Febrer underfoot all the time is the most irritating thing. <laughs> How many of us were there? Oh, I was never able to figure that out. Not even approximately. To make a count, we would have had to move apart, at least a little, and instead we all occupied the same point. Contrary to what you might think, it wasn't the sort of situation that encourages sociability. <laughs> I know, for example, that in other periods, neighbors called on one another, but there, because of the fact that we were all neighbors, nobody even said good morning or good evening to anybody else. In the end, each of us associated only with a limited number of acquaintances. The ones I remember most are Mrs. Fiknik, her friend Dick Sauksinks, a family of immigrants by the name of Zzu, and Mr. Ferber, 
whom I already mentioned. <laughs> there was also a cleaning woman, maintenance staff, she was called, only one for the whole universe, <laughs> since there was so little room. <laughs> to tell the truth, she had nothing to do all day long, not even dusting. Inside one point, not even a grain of dust can enter, so she spent all her time gossiping and complaining. Just with the people I've already named, we would have been overcrowded, but you have to add all the stuff we had to keep piled up in there, all the material that was to serve afterwards to form the universe, now dismantled and concentrated in such a way that you weren't able to tell what was later to become part of astronomy, like the nebula of Andromeda, from what was assigned to geography, like the Vosges, for example, or that chemistry, like certain beryllium isotopes. And on top of that, we were always bumping against the Zuzu family's household goods, camp beds, mattresses, baskets, the Zuzus. If you weren't careful with the excuse that they were a large family, they would begin to act as if they were the only ones in the world. They even wanted to hang lines across our point to dry their washing. But the others had also wronged the Zuzus to the begin with by calling them immigrants on the pretext that since the others had been there first, the Zuzus had come later. This was more unfounded prejudice, that seems obvious to me, because neither before nor after existed, nor any place to immigrate from, but there were those who insisted that the concept of immigrant could be understood in the abstract, <laughs> outside of space and time. <laughs> This is uh, an excerpt from a letter written uh, during Calvino's trip to New York, his first trip to New York when he was in his early 30s, written in 1960. For the first time in my life, I get on a horse, Sunday morning in Central Park. But the stable is rather far from the park. It is west. And the minute I'm in the saddle, I have to go a rather long way on 89th Street and cross a couple of avenues. <laughs> I ride high over the roofs of the cars, which are forced to slow down behind the pace of the horse. In Central Park, the ground is firm, but a bit muddy. I trot a bit and even gallop a little, which is easier. In the marvelously serene air of New York, no city in the world has such a blue sky and such limpid air the skyscrapers surround me. The usual squirrels run about the lawns. My companion sits lightly in her saddle, shouting technical instructions to me, which I don't understand. <laughs> I have a feeling of dominating New York as never before. And to all those who visit New York for the first time, I recommend the first thing to do is to get on a horse. <laughs> to leave you this evening with this image of Italo Calvino riding a horse in the streets of New York. 
Thank you. Thank you very much.